today uh, and for the next two Sundays, uh, we'll give our attention to addressing, as Adam said, our threefold purpose statement, uh, loving God supremely, uh, loving others sacrificially, and living in the world distinctively. I was thinking back when we set out almost four years ago, we said that we believed that these three objectives should guide us uh, as a church. Uh, they're not unique to us in the sense that uh, we stated then and we affirm even today uh, that these are biblical and, in fact, should be guiding every church uh, and every church's ministry. We also said that two of these statements, and we recognize them immediately, uh, come uh, directly from Scripture. In fact, the Lord gave them in the law, uh, and then He restated them as being the whole of the law uh, and the prophets. So we can't overstate their significance. Uh, that is, to love God supremely and to love others sacrificially. Uh, but third, and this corresponds to our living in the world distinctively, we stated that we have to look different in the world. And then we also stated that here again today, and we'll say it, that these three statements would guide us missionally. Uh, we believe that these three objectives are at the heart of our missions and evangelism and should be. Uh, our mission in spreading the gospel here, our mission in spreading the gospel wherever we go, but especially as we are in northern Ghana, is there again to point people to the Lord God who is to be loved and honored uh, and who is to be served. Uh, our discipling of our people here uh, is to the end uh, to help them come uh, to sacrificially, uh, give of themselves. We're, you always are hearing that. Give of yourself. Give your life away. That's what we're talking about. And even last week, we considered the return of Christ, and we were reminded uh, that, in, in, that in itself demands us to be prepared uh, and to help prepare others, to see that others are prepared for His return. And then finally, we said that our ongoing maturation as a body and as individual believers uh, should reflect that we are growing uh, and developing uh, in these three areas. And as we have in the past, we're, we're reaching back into text, and we will be. For the next three weeks, we're going to be in Hebrews, and that's not a new place for most of us because we have, we have been there. And we do that for a couple of reasons. One, because you're familiar with it. Uh, and then two, uh, we want to we want to help you in your own personal Bible studies to begin to recognize the pieces of this that show up page after page and verse after verse. Uh, we can't go to Scripture without hearing of those three things, and we hope that even in our time together now, it is conditioning you uh, and helping condition me again. Uh, as we look to Scripture for these things. Now, I want us to turn our attention to our text today, and you'll find that we printed the text today because we're looking at several passages of Scripture. In fact, whenever we were deciding who was going to take what week, I remember Booney made the comment, I believe it was, and you're going to deal with all those texts in one time, and we are. We're going to put them all together. <coughs> Excuse me. 
We're going to put them all together. And so because they are spread out from chapter 1 to chapter 9, we printed those into worship guides. We're not telling you not to turn to them in your pages of Scripture. But as we're trying to connect dots there, uh, that may be helpful if you find them all in one place. So I want to look at the first text, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Why should we be concerned about loving God? You ever thought about it? Why should we even concern ourselves with loving God? Why do we love God? Well, we love God for a lot of different reasons. And there are many reasons why we should love God. But I believe that our text this morning that we read in our call to worship and the text that we just read give us the ground, in other words, the foundation or the first place that we need to look to understand what it is to love God and why we should love Him and love Him supremely. In other words, why it is paramount When Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And he said, this is the great and first commandment. Out of everything else that he could have selected in Scripture, out of all the great commandments, he says, this is the great and first commandment. Now I want to draw your attention back just a moment. And notice what Isaiah had to say that he heard from the seraphim, and we sang it. But it is holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. God is holy. And it is clear from that text that His holiness radiates or emits glory. In fact, the glory of God is actually the the radiance of, that is coming from His holiness. I never thought about it until I was looking at this text back in Isaiah. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of, and we would expect to hear what? Holy, holy, holy. But it says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. In other words, the radiance of the holiness of God is His glory. The psalmist wrote it this way. He said, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the earth. The holiness and wonder of the glory of God fills the earth, fills all of creation, fills all of the heavens. His glory is so wonderful that it cannot be silenced. And I want you to hear that again. His glory 
And His holiness is so wonderful that it cannot be silenced. Paul said it in a little different way, but he put it this way. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. In other words, those who would claim to not know of the holiness of God can't because the whole earth is filled with His glory and He has revealed His holiness in creation. And then Paul goes on to say that for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. It's clear. Man just disregarded the holiness of God. The sum total of His infinite value and perfection morally and every other way. They saw it. They saw it. They were able to recognize it. They were able to understand it because God made it possible for them to understand. He's made it possible for us to understand. He has made it possible for every person in all of the world that has ever lived to know of His holiness and His greatness. They saw it. They were able to understand it. And it was presented to them, but in their rebellion, in their hatred and foolishness, they disregarded the holiness of God. But you know what's true? Is that God intended and still intends for us to see his glory. And we see that here in our text. What do we hear? That He is the radiance, talking about Christ Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. Hear that again. God has spoken of His holiness all along through the course of history in creation and His prophets. And there was a twofold message that all of the prophets spoke. It is God is holy and He is worthy to be worshipped. When people were called to repentance, it was because God is holy and He is worthy to be worshipped. When they were called to obey, it is because God is holy and He is worthy to be worshipped. The psalmist summed it up by saying, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of what? Holiness. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Now I know, already, you may be wondering, nowhere have I heard the word love. Nowhere have we seen the word love in any of these texts. And you're right. They're not there. But don't be fooled into embracing some idea of a love for God that is soft and mushy. At the ground of our love for Him is seeing the glory that radiates from His perfection and His holiness, and His all-satisfying presence, and His goodness. I want you to think about it for a moment. God as all-satisfying and all-fulfilling. I want you to see that connection as you look back at Isaiah and His posture. 
Booney brought it to our attention when he read our call to worship. What was his posture? He fell before God, falling before the beauty and the majesty and wonder of holy God and hearing the seraphim repeat over again, the whole earth is full of His glory. The posture that most resembles a love for the supreme and satisfying Lord. I'm not sure anyone would be confused in how to respond to the Lord's presence. Each picture that we see in Scripture where a man or someone encounters the Lord, whether it's at the burning bush or at Sinai in the giving of the law or the accounts of the visions before the throne, we never are confused as to what's going on. His brilliant glory coming from His supreme perfection and holiness are always on display. And they're breathtaking. They they move people to a state of awe. You never, you never come away from those accounts confused about what the proper response should be. Now look at Christ Jesus. The radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. In Him we see holy God. So why love God? Because He is the only perfect and holy and trustworthy one to be loved. Now what I'm getting ready to say, you will know is true. You'll know this. Every other person or thing that you currently love or ever will love will at best be as the dust of the ground, like powder, worthy to be swept up and discarded, as they are held up against God. And what I've just said, it applies to every person here, whether you profess Christ, whether you profess love to Him or not. And I want to say that if you do not see, you haven't yet seen the glory of God in Christ and fallen before Him as Isaiah did before God, crying out, Woe is me! I am a man of unclean lips. Or like Peter did when he said to Jesus, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. That I would point you to the fact that you've not yet approached a place to say, I love God. You're not there. Now said that God's holiness, His all-satisfying presence is the ground of our love for God. And it begins there. But it's also true that a proper response to God is love because He has loved a sinner. And for those of you who have trusted Christ, you know this. You know of His love. We hear the reality of it when Paul writes to the Romans, but God shows His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then Paul writes again to the Romans saying, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This question is rightly presuming that Christ loves. God loves and Christ loves. Had not, He would not have asked that question, who can separate us from His love? And if we'll listen to what Paul wrote just prior to asking the question, which in one sense is almost like a rhetorical question, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Paul goes on to answer it, but before he poses the question, he writes this, and listen to these words. If God is for us, Who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against the elect? It's God who justifies. Who is condemned? Christ Jesus is the one who dies. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, indeed interceding for us. So what do we hear? We hear that God loves. We hear that Christ loves. So what is the proper response to those who love you? What do we generally do with those people that we know love us? Well, we love them right back. We love them right back. Now again, we don't get a murky water view of loving God in Scripture. That's not what we get. What we hear is obedience, trusting, following, loving others. All of these are demonstrations of our love for God. And I want to pause here just a minute and say, while none of these are ever seen in perfection in any believer, for the believer, all of these will be evidenced and developing. Now, now the reason I mention that is because what I'm helping us do is to guard against thinking that somehow or another, if we care for people, that that is a sign that we're a believer. We can in some ways love our neighbor and be troubled over human need and suffering and not love God. But when we begin to set out to say we're going to follow Christ and we seek to follow Him and we want to obey Him and we seek to obey Him, then we are in that instance, we are determined to demonstrate love back to the one who has loved us. Now, I want us to look back at our text and consider this question. Okay? What do we see the holiness of God do? That sounds strange to ask that question that way. What do we see the holiness of God do? In other words, what do we see the sum total of God's perfection do? Well, we know holiness is an attribute. What does an attribute do? Well, when that attribute is the holiness of God, it is everything about Him, and everything about Him does what that attribute is intended to do. In other words, that's the sum total of all of His perfection. So what does it do? Well, the answer is found in Christ. And look at what it does. He, meaning Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power after making purification for sins. Notice, after making purification for sins. So what does it do? Well, if Christ is the radiance of the glory of God, He is holiness embodied. What does holiness embodied or embodied holiness do? It purifies. Notice that. That's what it does. It purifies. He makes purification for sins. So the holiness, the purity, the perfection of God takes on flesh to purify the impure, to make perfect the imperfect, to make righteous the unrighteous. And here's what's incredible. 
Only the pure one can purify. Something that is impure cannot purify. It is only that which is pure that is able to purify. Now we're going to come back in just a minute to look at loving Him because He loved us. But I want us to read our other text. So if you want to follow along there in your worship guide, you can. Or if you want to follow along in Scripture. But I want you to look in chapter 2. And we're going, to read them, we're going to read them straight through. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who were tempted. Look in chapter 4. And beginning in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Look at chapter 5 and verse 9. And being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. Look at chapter 7 and verse 25. He is able to save to the uttermost, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And then look in chapter 9. And, and we're going to put these together in just a minute. But when Christ appeared, verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing, catch this, an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So the question that's before us, we said, what did we see the holiness of God do? And we have said that it purifies, in other words, it makes purification for sin through Christ. But what does this work entail? Well, notice that Jesus condescends 
and takes on flesh to be tempted and to suffer, which, by the way, if you haven't figured this out already in life, is the state of fallen sinful humans. Okay? We're tempted and we suffer. That's our lot, thanks to Adam, thanks to our own doing. We fall to temptation. But notice that Jesus does not. So His loving work, which, mind you, again, is the work of His holiness, the work of holiness, condescends and takes on flesh and He subjects Himself to what? Well, we just read it. Temptation and suffering. Yet He doesn't sin. Now, what does this tell us about the holiness of God? It tells us that God's holiness is infinite. Now I want you to hold on to this. Okay? His holiness is infinite. And it is infinite and it is proven infinite by the fact that He condescended and took on flesh and endured temptation and suffering and hardship, yet He did not sin. Which means this, that He will continue and still emits His glory powerfully. So when we say that the radiance of the glory of God and that God has spoken through Christ and continues to speak through the gospel as it points back to Christ and His death and His burial and His resurrection is all a statement toward the holiness and the glory of God. And it continues to emit. And continues to radiate. Which we saw for the last two weeks, if you'll remember, that that glory is emitted into all eternity. And this will have bearing on something else that we'll look at in just a moment. But I want you to, I want you to get grounded there. The second thing we see is that He intercedes. In other words, he, he intercedes for us. He stands as our substitute, as we sang just a moment ago, and as we pointed to substitutionary atonement. But He stands on our behalf. He intercedes on our behalf. Let's take and look at these Scriptures just a minute to see how and in what ways. Well, first... He intercedes for us, notice, back in chapter 1. Go all the way back there. Yeah, notice there. He intercedes on our behalf By becoming, chapter 2, by becoming the propitiation for the sins of the people. Okay? So not only does He in His holiness offer the sacrifice, and we see that He did offer the sacrifice. Look there in verse, chapter 2, verse 14. He took on flesh, He condescended, 
And it says, for surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So he makes propitiation for the sins of the people. Not only does he in his holiness offer the sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God, but he is the sacrifice. Now I want to, I want you to, I want to point back to this just so you understand what, what, what's being said here. Only a purified priest was able to go into the Holy of Holies. In other words, he went through a whole, a, a whole system of purification outwardly to give demonstration to God by God's own prescription so that he would be in a place that he could intercede on behalf of the people. Christ is holy. He goes in and he also then offers himself. He offers himself. So Christ, the Holy One, intercedes for us. Now notice what else. He intercedes for us in death. Look at what it says. That through death, in other words, we hear that he took on flesh, he had to suffer, he went through that, the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So he intercedes for us in death. That is, he died a death that cannot be overcome by the unrighteous. I want you to hear that again. He died a death that cannot be overcome by the unrighteous. That's the reason that when we are lovingly pointing people toward their sin and repentance to trust in Christ for their salvation, what we are saying is, is that either the Lord will return or you will die, but the unrighteous will not overcome that death and the unrighteous will not overcome Overcome the judgment of God. Apart from the Holy One, they cannot overcome it. So uh, all people who die don't go be with the Lord. Only those who have been declared righteous, who have been justified by Christ. But I notice this. Notice the benefit of this death. We sang about it just a, just a moment ago. He destroyed the one who has power over death. That is the devil. Now, if you have ever thought about it, and I have every time I approach this text, what does that really mean? What does that mean? How does Satan have power over death? I thought life and death were held in the hands of God. Well, they are. God has given, has God given him the power over death? In other words, can, can Satan kill you? Can he kill you? That's the question. Well, Scripture tells us it's only as God grants him permission. You'll recall back, we've been to Job, so we're going to point back to him. Remember the restriction that God put over Satan regarding Job. This is what God said. Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. That's not a request. <laughs> That's not a request. That's a command. That's a command. In other words, this is a restriction that God is placing on him. It is not a request. It's not, well, 
please spare his life. No, he's saying spare his life. In other words, you cannot kill him. Now, I was thinking about that in relation to this text. I don't think that means that God always restricts Satan in that way. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. But I don't think that that's what that means. I think that in Job's case, God put that restriction on him. And I thought about it in relation to this. God didn't restrict Satan in his work on 9-11 as sinful men gripped with hatred navigated planes which ultimately took the lives of 2,996 lives. God didn't restrict him then. And it's clear that Jesus said, and do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul. So what is the point? Yeah, God may give him permission to take a life. He can't take a soul. He can't take the soul. So what power does he have? Well, we looked at it a moment ago when we read in Romans chapter 8. Satan is the accuser. He's the one who stands before God and accuses. In other words, who's going to condemn you? Who's going to accuse you? Who's going to accuse you? He accused Job. So what's the author of Hebrews trying to help us understand? He's trying to help us see that Christ intercedes on behalf of the believer to ensure that Satan doesn't accuse them before God. They can't. He can't because the Holy One, the radiance of the glory of God and the holiness of God, Jesus Christ stands there and says, you can't. You have no ground to accuse them because you can't accuse me. And they are in me and I am in them. That's the reason that Paul puts it this way. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it is true what we sang last week. And I have been holding on to these words all week. So when Satan tempts me to despair, upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. Go back and look before the throne of God above. That's true. It's true in the final judgment, and it is true when the accuser seeks to kill you by reminding you of your sin. Listen, Christ has interceded. Christ intercedes, and He will intercede for you. Christ has destroyed the one who would accuse you. But I want you to notice also that He helps those who are being tempted. Look in chapter 2 and verse 18. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Now what does that mean? What does that mean? I'm tempted, you're tempted. How does He help us in that? Well, we know that it doesn't mean that that He uh, insulates us to where we'll never sin again. We know that because John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
But remember what Jesus told Simon Peter. He said, and I love this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail you. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brother. You see, Jesus allowed him to be tempted. He allowed him to deny him and be tempted to deny him. And he granted that he would fall in that temptation. But he wouldn't let it destroy him. He wouldn't let it destroy him. His faith would not completely fail. In fact, his faith would hold him to the end to encourage others and to point people ahead to wait on Christ and look to Him. Notice what else? He intercedes for us, granting us confidence to come to the throne of grace. Look at what He says there in chapter 4. Am I right there? No. I've lost my place. But He intercedes for us. Yeah. Chapter 4 in verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. He intercedes for us, granting us to come to the throne of grace. In other words, He intercedes for us in such a way that we know we will always encounter grace at His throne. I want you to hear that. Believer, don't expect to find judgment at the throne of God. What are you going to find? You're going to find mercy and grace. Why? Because of Christ, it will always be a place of grace. Look in chapter 5 and verse 9. He intercedes for us and grants us eternal salvation. Our salvation isn't temporary. It is eternal because He is eternal and His holiness and perfection are eternal. This is why the work driven out of the holiness of God is so incredible. Only the Holy One who is holy is eternal. Everyone and everything else is subject to destruction. So when the Holy One interceded, for you, when the Holy One intercedes for you, then you can know salvation. Eternal salvation. That's why when we look in chapter 7 and verse 25, and look there. Let's read it again. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. He's able to save to the uttermost. He secures salvation for all eternity because He never ceases to intercede for us. I want you to think about that for a moment. He never ceases to intercede for us. In fact, He lives to do so. He lives to do so. Now let's look again at chapter 9. And I want to read that again. Verses 11 through 14. 
But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. We have an eternal life. We have an eternal uh, intercessor. We have eternal redemption. Everything that is connected with this Holy One is eternal. Even the rejection of the Holy One points toward and leads to eternal suffering and damnation. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. He's talking about those, all the sacrifices that the priest had made. Okay. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You remember just a few minutes ago we started by asking this question. What do we see the holiness of God do? And remember we said the answer is found in Christ. He makes purification for sins. So the holiness, the purity, the perfection of God takes on flesh to purify the impure, make perfect the imperfect, and to make righteous the unrighteous. Only the pure one can purify. So we end where we began. Now I want to close with this question. And it's not a rhetorical question, mind you. To what end? To what end does he purify? And we hear the answer there in verse 14. To the end that even our consciences are purified and cleansed. From what? From striving to and believing in that we can somehow work for salvation. That's what he's saying. To purify us from those dead works. What dead works? All of our works in some kind of an effort to please God. All of our works in some kind of effort to earn the favor of God. All of those works, even for the best of heart, who would seek to do their best for God. He purifies our conscience from that. And what does that do? It causes us to see the holiness of God and our imperfection and our need for Him and His satisfaction in every thing and then where does it go well look at the last line to serve the living God to serve 
the living God. I can't help but believe that that is loving service. In other words, I can't help believe, I can't help but believe that that is love. Why? Because He is holy and fully satisfying. And because all that we have just said that He has done, He did because He loved us. For God demonstrated His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So why do we talk about loving God supremely? My goodness, we can't help but talk about loving Him supremely. Why do we hold that up before each other? My goodness, because He is worthy. He is worthy of that kind of love. And because He's loved us. So we close with this. Let's love God supremely. Let's disciple each other toward loving God supremely. Let's share the gospel because He is so worthy that every person should want to love Him when they see how worthy He is. Because everything else in life that we would give ourselves to not one little bit of it will satisfy us now. And we know that because we are constantly moving to other things and looking for satisfaction. And I'm not saying all that's bad. All I'm saying is, is that in our life's experience, we understand and see that everything that we move to doesn't satisfy us, so we move to something else. But not with God. Not with Him. When we get with Him, we don't want anything else. We don't want anyone else. Let's love God supremely.